Welcome to the Exam Study Expert Podcast, helping you ace your exams at school and university through the psychology of high performance and the science of studying smarter, not harder. It's my pleasure to introduce your host, the Cambridge-trained memory psychologist and exam success coach, William Wadsworth. You're about to hear, I think, one of my new all-time favourite episodes. If you're looking to get productive, you're in the right place. Productivity means getting more stuff done in less time to at least the same quality as before, if not better. In other words, when you're a productive student, you can achieve equivalent grades, but in less study time. That's the dream, right? What you choose to do with all that extra time you free up, well, that's up to you. You could reinvest it back into weaker areas of your course, so you could get even higher grades. You could put some time into preparing for interviews for university, internships or jobs. You might want to take up a hobby or learn something new that you've always fancied. Or maybe you're just simply going to relax and enjoy the luxury of all that newfound free time on your calendar. I owe my introduction to productivity strategies to a man called Chris Bailey more than anyone else. I'd heard him on a podcast a few years ago. I thought he was pretty good and ordered his book off Amazon right away. I remember devouring it while I was visiting my parents in the north of England. And when I came back to my desk... I had pretty well the most productive days of my entire life. I'm talking an insane output for just a few days' work. But the impact was far from short-lived. Off the back of the book, I made some changes to how I'd work, which has stuck with me ever since and helped me get my stuff done faster. That book was called The Productivity Project, and I am delighted to welcome its author, Chris Bailey, today. So I'm a big productivity geek. Like if there's if there's one topic I'm a big geek about, it's productivity, like getting more done. Because, you know, we only have so many hours each and every day. So, you know, I always think, why not make the best use of those hours? And why not indeed? Chris is an international best-selling author of two books, The Productivity Project, which I mentioned, and his more recent book, Hyperfocus. And he also writes about productivity on his blog, a life of productivity.com. Now, there are a lot of different elements to getting productive, and I'm going to dive into the interview proper with Chris in just a minute, where he's going to share some first-rate productivity strategies for students. But I just wanted to first give you a bit of a framework for thinking about productivity, and so I'm going to share a short extract from the introduction to The Productivity Project, which I thought was extremely insightful and is going to really nicely set up the conversation we're going to have today. I arrived at an epiphany. Every lesson I learned fell into better management of one of three categories. My time, my attention, and my energy. Although many lessons or insights fit into more than one category, there was not a single thing I had explored that didn't have to do with some combination of the three. I can stop marvelling at how interconnected and important all three of the ingredients of productivity, time, energy, and attention really are. For example, getting enough sleep requires more time, but it boosts your energy and ability to maintain your attention. Eliminating noise and distractions also takes time, but helps you to manage your attention better because it provides you with more focus and clarity throughout the day. Changing your mindset takes energy and attention, but it will let you get more done in less time. All three are vitally important. If you don't spend your time wisely, 
it doesn't matter how much energy and focus you have, you won't accomplish a lot at the end of the day. If you can't focus or bring a lot of attention to what you're doing, it doesn't matter if you know what your smartest tasks are or have a ton of energy, you won't be able to engage fully with your work and become more productive. And finally, if you can't manage your energy well, it doesn't matter how well you can manage your time or attention, you're just not going to have enough fuel in the tank to get everything done that you intend to. So in the interview today, we're going to focus on two of those three aspects of productivity in particular. We're going to talk quite a bit about managing our attention, particularly the importance of having a clear mind, stripping back all of the distractions so you can focus intently on the one thing in front of you that you're really trying to do. In other words, how to focus. And second, how to manage your time, how to be organised about your schedule and plan your time from making a study timetable through to when to take breaks and what to do in them. So let's dive right in. I start by asking Chris about his obsession for productivity and how it got started at a relatively early age, right back when he was a high school student. It's kind of weird, isn't it? Like most people have normal interests like sports and I don't even cooking, maybe. I don't know. Hanging out with friends. Music, drama. Music, yeah. Yeah, yeah you, you have more examples than I do because I just have one and that's productivity. <laughs> um, yeah, so so both my parents are psychologists, which I think makes me... One, one of the things that makes me a bit of a weirdo. So I remember, you know, looking through their collection of psychology textbooks that they had just lying around the house and not understanding a lot of it as a young teenager. I'm going to be honest with you. I wasn't some... Sure some gifted person by any stretch of anyone's imagination. But, you know, I, I just kind of let curiosity drive me through processing that information, you know, looking at what I, I found to be curious from the information that they had lying around the house. And I, I spent a lot of time in bookstores growing up, you know, I, I had more books than friends, he could say. <laughs> and and I, I remember to this day stumbling upon uh, one book called Getting Things Done by somebody who's gone on to become a a good friend of mine. His name is David Allen. And I, I thought, okay, this looks kind of like a corny book uh, when, when I picked it up because there's a picture of David on the cover and he's wearing a, you know, he's wearing a suit jacket and all that stuff. If you want a sign not to pick up a book, don't pick up the books where the author puts a picture of himself on the cover. <laughs> it's usually a guy for some reason. But, uh, but yeah, so I picked up the book and I couldn't put it down. Honestly, you know, I, I poured through it in a day and I totally overhauled the way in which I lived my life. My head was clearer because the, the system essentially that the book espouses is that our uh, head is for having ideas, not for holding them. So the more ideas you get out of your head and into some external system, the clearer you can think and the more ideas that you can come up with. A to-do list is a really simple example of this. So hopefully those who are who are listening to the podcast, if you're geeky enough about this stuff to listen listen to a podcast about doing better. I, you know, you might make a to-do list already, but essentially every item you put on that to-do list, by putting it on that list, you get it out of your head and into some external system that you trust. And so you can think a bit more clearly because you don't have to run around like a chicken with its head cut off, constantly re-remembering -re all the things you have to do. Calendar is a similar way, but the system took that up uh, several notches. And, you know, with creating things like a waiting for list. One of my favorite strategies to this day that I use, a waiting for list, I think is just as powerful as a to-do list. And so it's, you know, you can break it down by category. I'm going to pull mine up right here live. 
I have mine broken down into categories. So for my blog, for the podcast, for my books, for speaking, for general business things, for financial independence, which is a big focus of mine right now, and for personal at at the very end, because I usually have fewer personal things that I'm waiting on. And essentially, you review this list a few times every week, and so you don't have to constantly re-remember the things that are unresolved in your life that you're waiting on other people for. You know, everything from a package that's going to come in the mail to something that you, you know, you just sent an important email and you want to get it off your mind, you put it in the list and you don't think about it until you review the list again. And picking up that book, honestly, that changed the way in which I worked. And it has through to this day. And that set off this kind of productivity obsession where, okay, I thought, okay, if this book can transform the way that I work so much, is there another book out there that can do the same thing, that can give me that clarity of thought, that can give me that intense focus, that can allow me to concentrate effortlessly, that can allow me to cultivate how much energy I have every day, that can allow me to feel better and accomplish more. And so I have more time for the things that are actually meaningful for me every day. And that, like, who, like, who wouldn't be obsessed with that stuff? That, that's the way that I see it. Once you feel great about how much you accomplish, it kind of sets off a chain reaction and you, and you just want to keep that feeling going. Absolutely. I think you graduated with something like a 95% average from, mm-hmm. from school uh, while creating huge amounts of free time for yourself. Uh, and then similarly, when you went on to university, you know, maintaining a, an A grade whilst, again, getting by doing as little work as possible. Yeah. Um, and I just thought, you know, we often talk about uh, on this podcast about working smarter, not harder. Mm-hmm. Uh, so finding more efficient ways to work and to get the best possible outcomes in school and college. And I thought that just seemed like such a great example of having done that in reality. Maybe you've already talked about a couple of the techniques that allowed you to do that. Is there anything else looking back that you think was important in helping you achieve that? I love that question. And and in all the interviews I've been asked, I haven't been asked that one. I can just share what worked for me. And a few of those strategies were leaning on the right people. I studied business, uh, more specifically marketing and and management. Um, I was originally in finance, but then I met all the people that studied study finance who are just obsessed with money. So I switched out of it. <laughs> um, but, but once I did, you know, I, I kind of realized uh, like the architecture of the work. And I, I think that's where, where we should all begin with our productivity is looking at the breakdown of the type of work that we do. You know, there's a lot of group work. And so I think having a team Really, to go to battle with these courses with, man, that sounds aggressive. Go to battle with these courses. Um, <laughs> but but seriously, you know, knowing which courses I group work versus individual work and leaning on the group work classes with a team of people that are still my friends through to this day. Um, a strategy of mine, not necessarily in high school as much as in university, um, was to, to look for those courses and seek those out with this team of people because we knew that they would be less work because we all cared about doing well and we would distribute the work 
evenly. Uh, we knew the skills that we had, and, and it becomes a team dynamic, right? So you don't have to constantly uh, reestablish a new team dynamic with the different courses that you take. You can settle into one immediately with the people that you already know, with the skills you know that they have, and work in this collaborative way. That, that kind of covers the group work side of things. And, you know, for the individualistic things, which, of course, most courses have, just having an intense focus while studying, having this deep concentration, I call it hyperfocus, it's a way of respecting yourself almost, because you're saying, okay, my time is valuable here. I don't want to spend all day rereading my study notes. I want to spend just a couple of hours. So I'm going to put my phone aside. I'm going to maybe not do it in front of the computer. I'm not going to have reruns of the office while I'm reading these things. I'm going to devote deep concentration to it. Another thing was having my actions be a part of a broader plan. I can pretend that I was, you know, this straight A student that only spent one hour every week on his studies, but that's not true, right? Uh, you know, there are some times when you're just in over your head where you just have to do the work and work hard and concentrate hard. But, you know, making sure your actions are a part of that broader plan when you are hunkering down, I think is critical too. Uh, some some great points there, Chris. I mean, being strategic about what you pick, playing to your strengths, in your case, group work, uh, where you've got a great rapport built with your, your team of friends, uh, being deliberate about that broader plan and, and the importance of focus and really devoting your full concentration to the task at hand. Yeah, you, you know, there's so much guilt that people have when, they're, when they can't concentrate or, or when they want to concentrate. But I, I think that's worth a reframe, right? We're like so hard on ourselves. We say like, William, why can't you focus, you stupid, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, you know, we say these dialogues to ourselves. But I think that the simple fact is we deserve to respect our time enough so that we have more free time for other things. We shouldn't have to spend all day reviewing stuff. You know, we should be able to get in and out as we please and transition to other things after. We shouldn't, you know, technology only, sometimes when it's nearby, when we're studying, it only serves to drag on what we're doing and make it a more drawn out process. I think that's something to keep in mind. You, you, like, don't be hard on yourselves when, when, when you're distracted, but know that you deserve to not be distracted. Absolutely. Absolutely. In the in a kind of academic context, one of the classic studies on this shows for every hour of studying, on average, students that use some kind of digital device or, or do some kind of technology multitasking, spend eight minutes of that hour just distracted on the wow. phone or whatever it is. Do you know when that study was done? Uh, it was 2016. Oh, so it's pretty recent. Wow. Pretty recent, yeah. And not only that, the group that were doing the multitasking went on to uh, to achieve significantly lower exam scores as well. So for the same amount of study time. Yeah. But one of the things I find quite interesting is it's not just the eight minutes out of the hour you lose, is it? There's also a cost to switching your attention back and forth. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And there's kind of the term that was coined by Sophie Leroy is attentional residue. And so essentially what that says is we can't seamlessly switch between things without remembering a bit of the previous thing that we were doing. And so let's say we're chatting and maybe my wife is in a different Zoom window on my computer. <laughs> and so, you know, and we're chatting, then I pause you and then, then mute myself here and then unmute myself with my wife. You can't do that seamlessly. Right, it would be incredible if if we could, we would have some like Jedi mind where we would be able to free ourselves of the baggage of the past constantly. But the the fact of the matter is, there's always kind of a like an aftertaste of what we were just doing in our current psyche. 
if we could seamlessly switch between things, the whole multitasking thing would be great. You know, you could talk to five people at once. You can play like four games of chess at one time. You could read something and, you know, not have your phone. But, but like, we're always re-remembering what we were just doing. And because of that, we need to make sure that we spend more time on one thing before we switch to doing something else. When I was writing my second book, one study that shocked me was conducted by a team of researchers at Microsoft uh, named uh, Gloria Mark and Mary Sherwinsky. And what, what they found is that when, some, when an office worker worked in front of a computer, especially when their phone was nearby, uh, they focused on one thing for just 40 seconds before they switched to, to doing something else. Wow. And that shocked me right? Like, who the hell only focuses on something for 40 seconds? But then I noticed when I sat down in front of the computer, you know, I wasn't as low as 40 seconds. I was doing a bit better than that. But by God, I switched between things quite often. And I honestly didn't believe the study when I encountered it. So I phoned up Gloria <laughs> and I said, can I meet you and, and, and look at how you work? I flew out to Microsoft Research's uh, campus in, in Redmond, Washington. And I saw that the way they worked was they, they measured these things in situ, so which just stands for in situation. They actually trained cameras on people as they worked. This wasn't like measuring some mouse in a maze and saw they switched directions every 40 seconds. So, oh, humans must do the same thing. They trained cameras on people and found they switch contacts this often. We create such inefficiencies with regard to the work that we do. And things take easily twice as long when we're constantly switching between things because of that attentional residue. If we could switch seamlessly, great. You know, we we wouldn't have to give all this advice about multitasking, but the fact of the matter is we cannot. Meditation does, by the way, help us a bit with clearing up our attentional residue. So the more that we meditate, the more cognitive control we have over our attention and the less attentional residue we experience. Kind of a curious phenomenon, but that's the only thing that I've found uh, helpful. Oh, also, how demanding a task is, is helpful, but that's kind of difficult to control. So especially with regard to time pressure. Mm, such an important factor, I think, in study efficiency yeah. <laughs> in, in the modern world with all the distractions that we, we face. And, and again, like if you find that you're facing this, don't be hard on yourself. Like don't right. beat yourself up. I found myself beating myself up so much in the course of writing my second book, which came about because I realized how distracted I was after writing the first one and when, when I had yeah. uh, more of an absence of deadlines and things to do. And when there was more ambiguity with regard to my schedule, when there was less structure, which of course are two factors of work that are paramount to academia. And I beat myself up so much. And, and if I have one regret through the process of getting better at regulating my attention, it was that, you know, we deserve, mm. um, we deserve kindness from ourselves and everybody has this same struggle where we crave the, the new and novel. And so we're constantly looking at our phone. That's just the way our mind is wired, right? There's a novelty bias embedded within our brain that says that for every new and novel thing we focus on, our mind rewards us with a hit of dopamine, that chemical of anticipation of pleasure, right? And so we check Instagram, we get a hit. We go to email, we get another hit of dopamine. We hop over to Facebook, we get another hit still. We check the news, we get another hit. Our work doesn't provide us with that. 
that, right? Like looking at a Word document and creating study notes doesn't provide us with that same thing, uh, which means we have an uphill battle, which means we have to be kind to ourselves as we adjust into a less stimulated mind. That's a great point. I was just curious, uh, you know, we were talking about techniques and strategies you felt were quite important in helping you get through school and college. You've obviously learned and studied a huge amount on productivity and focus since then. Yeah. Based on all those things you've learned since, is there anything in particular you might go back and do differently with the benefit of hindsight? That's a great question. Uh, Most things, (laughs) maybe. I think I had a lot of things good, um, but if, if there, there are definitely things that I could have been doing better. I didn't always always follow that advice of intense focus of not having distractions nearby. And mind you, you know, back in I forget when I attended you, like 2010 maybe, there were way fewer distractions as there are today. There is definitely the phone by my side, but it didn't have all these social media apps with all these algorithms that were tailored to me. But I definitely had Twitter and and stuff like that. Uh, And so I think the biggest thing would have been to check that less, right? Like one one thing I'm constantly doing today with uh, finding the meaning of my time is think, okay, when I'm on my deathbed, will I regret uh, doing this? You know, will I regret the time that I spent on this? It's a great way of, it's kind of morbid, but it's a great way of fast forwarding. Like when I'm on my deathbed, will I regret all the time that I spent on Twitter? Maybe. (laughs) I might. Will I regret the time that I spent with my wife? Probably. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Definitely not. (laughs) Um, And and so so I think it's a wonderful way of fast forwarding. Um, Sorry, Arden, if you're this. But uh, yeah, yeah, the the things I do differently, definitely more meditation. It's a surefire way of making back time. And I think that's the golden standard we should be using for productivity strategies is for every minute we spend on something, how many minutes will we make back because we spent time on that strategy. And meditation, you know, I, I recently ran a calculation because of how it allows us to think more clearly, of how it uh, leads us to become less distracted, how it leads us to focus for longer. I poured over the science and I, I made a rough back of the napkin calculation that for every minute we spend meditating up to a certain point, probably about 40 minutes a day, we make back nine minutes wow. in added focus and less distracted and just being less less distracted throughout the day. And so I, I, I wish I would have meditated more. I wish I would have kept distractions at bay. I wish I would have let my mind wander a bit more often too. Uh, get into this mode that I call scatter focus, where we purposefully let our mind wander. That's unlocking your creativity, isn't it? Yeah, so yeah. Connecting the dots and coming up with ideas. Exactly. So if you're constantly consuming information, we need the opportunity to see how those bits of information are interrelated with one another. You know, focus allows us to accumulate information in our mind, but scatter focus allows us to connect it all. And all you need to do is just let your mind wander, do something habitual. I wish I would have done that a bit more, gone on more walks and stuff like that through nature. Some great advice in there. Be more deliberate, as Chris says, about whether on the one hand you're in creative, idea-generating, mind-wandering mode, maybe on a walk, what he calls scatter focus, uh, versus on the other hand, when you're in distraction-free, single-minded, intensely focused, trying to get your work done mode, uh, what he calls hyper-focus in, in his book of the same name. I just wanted to dive in at this point with an afterthought, because we talk a lot on the podcast about efficient learning strategies, things like retrieval practice and spaced learning. 
techniques that really work when it comes to getting information into your memory. You can look back at episode two, how to study two seriously powerful ways to improve memory uh, if you're new to those ideas. But the thing about techniques like retrieval practice and spacing is while they let you learn faster, remember more and forget it more slowly, they also take much more effort in the moment than less effective learning strategies like just reading through your notes. So I really like Chris's message about strategies to allow you to work with that kind of intense focus because it creates the perfect conditions in which to do really effective learning strategies like retrieval practice and spacing. You need both the right conditions and the right learning technique. They're two halves of a whole system. If you have both the right conditions, that's Chris's hyperfocus, and the right learning technique, retrieval practice, you'll be unstoppable. I finished our conversation with Chris today by asking a few questions about managing your time as a student, starting with one of my personal bugbears, getting his thoughts on the fairly ubiquitous advice, at least here in the UK, that you should always draw up a study or revision timetable, which plans out exactly what topic you'll study in which hour of which day for weeks and weeks leading up to the exams. Yeah, a lot of people recommend that too. Uh, I, uh, you know, with working, you know, we should block out every hour of our day for for certain things. Uh, I, I really think, and this it might sound like a cop out answer, but I, it's something I really, really believe. Uh, everybody's different, and, and so you know, the thing about personal productivity is it's personal productivity. It's not just you know, and anybody who's espousing advice that everybody should work this way, everybody should study this yeah. way, everybody should behave this way. They're, they're, they're full of it because we're all different. We're all wired different and we all prefer different things. Uh, some of us need to be kind of corralled by ourselves and others of us have more flexibility with regard to how we think to be able to work around the constraints and the deadlines of the moment. And so I, I think a, a thing like that, it kind of breaks down when we have less to do because we don't have the natural pressure that the work that we do provides in order for us to compress it to to a certain time on the calendar. And our work, our studies, they expand, they contract depending on where we are in the year. We might need to study more. We might need to study less. And we might need a bit more of a break depending on how we're feeling on a given day. I think in general, more flexibility is helpful. Uh, Maybe doing this at the beginning of each week as you map out the week, maybe not a month or two ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, that sounds that sounds good. You mentioned breaks. Yeah. How important is it to take regular breaks and perhaps what should we be doing in them? Yeah. First of all, what you do, anything that lets your mind wander. You know, if you think back to when your best, most brilliant ideas have struck you, you probably weren't focused on anything. Your mind was probably wandering. Maybe you're going on a walk through nature. Maybe you're going for a run. Maybe you're just making a cup of coffee and enjoying that. And then boom, the idea hit you, or maybe you're taking a shower, which is where a lot of ideas come to us. The thing that all these things have in common is there are simple habitual activities that let our mind wander. So that's the key. How often do you need a break? I would redirect that question uh, towards that of awareness. So often we work with not enough awareness to realize that we need a break in the first place. Because how often we need to break depends on entirely on what we're doing and how motivated we are by it. The more naturally motivated we are by what we're doing, the less we have to regulate our attention, the more interesting it is, and the fewer breaks we need versus something that is very tedious where we might need some time to let our mind wander. Not a distracted break where we're just on social media, but a genuine 
proper break in which we let our mind wander. So I, I think it, it really does depend on how motivating we find our work. Like if you're watching 10 episodes of The Office on Netflix, you probably don't need a break, <laughs> you know, because it's motive. We don't have to regulate our attention. Uh, if yeah. you're reading 10 journal articles about an office, we might need to, you know, take a f- few more breaks. Yeah. 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 You also mentioned uh, making a cup of coffee, which beautifully segues into uh, what's your view on on caffeine? I know, particularly once you get to sort of university, college level, there's there's a fair bit of uh, yeah. caffeine taking swilling around <laughs> in libraries. What's your view on that and its impact on on productivity? I actually don't consume caffeine these days. I drink uh, Swiss water decaffeinated coffee, which has zero caffeine in it, uh, simply because I find that A, coffee uh, leads my energy to spike and spiral when I don't want it to, uh, and B, it, it leads me to feel more anxious than I'd like. And I think, you know, in the DSM-5, there's a caffeine-induced anxiety disorder. I don't think I have that, but I think it's a common undiagnosed thing. If you find coffee makes you anxious, you know, there's enough to be stressed out about in our work, in the world, without caffeine. And so I think there are better uh, mechanisms for that. You know, green tea is a great substitute because it has L-theanine, which leads us to produce less adrenaline uh, when we consume a cup of coffee. So it's not necessarily this this liquid stress that we're intaking and putting into our bodies. Uh, so I, I think substitutions are critical, but I think also drinking caffeine strategically instead of a bit when we actually benefit from the energy, I think that's key. You know, maybe just taking, sometimes all we need is a break instead of a cup of coffee. Um, sometimes all we need is a cup of water instead of a coffee. Uh, you know, it's, I, th- I think that's something to keep in mind that there are uh, these alternatives and that we don't need to be swept up in that culture. I, I, I still love the taste. I love the ritual. Uh, you know, I love grinding the beans in the morning and making a nice French pressed cup of coffee, but it's decaf these days. And, and I like that. Nice. Nice. I, I do a very similar thing, actually. And, and so finally, I've seen you write about biological prime time, yeah. or BPT. What do you mean by biological prime time and how important is it to us? So if you cut out everything that fluctuates your energy, if you get a consistent sleep every day, if you don't drink caffeine, if you, uh, you know, don't have too much sugary stuff, so that fluctuates your energy, what you'll find is that there is a natural rhythm to how much energy you have throughout the day. And this is what we kind of mean. We're approaching this idea when we call somebody an early bird or a night owl or a lark or, or whatever you know nomenclature that we want to use. Um, essentially, what the research shows is that, is that there are certain chronotypes, certain patterns that we fall into where our energy fluctuates in predictable ways throughout the day. And because energy, I, I consider energy to be a key ingredient in our productivity, in addition to time and attention, because our energy fluctuates, so too does our productivity. And so we need to account for these waves that our body goes through throughout the day. There are certain calculations that uh, it's possible to do, like charting our energy levels. There are certain other calculations, maybe we can link it in the show notes or something, yeah, yeah. That, I, that I post about on my website. But knowing how your energy fluctuates allows you to work around these patterns of fluctuation. You're able to ride those energy waves so that when you have more energy, you're able to get more done because you're working on your most important things anyway. That might be a good pairing technique to what we were talking about with blocking off time in our schedules at the beginning of each week. Maybe not the beginning of each month, but the beginning of each week. And understanding this, working with this awareness, we can strategically take breaks too when we need it. 
Something as simple as, as giving a presentation in a class, if, if the class happens twice a week at different times, then we find that we're more alert in the morning. We can sign up for the morning presentation and do a better job of it. And so there are ways of coordinating all these things. Again, listening to yourself and, and playing to your strengths. Yeah, that awareness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Chris, I, I, I normally ask at this point, if you had any advice for your 16-year-old self, oh, man. Uh, if you were able to go back in time and, and yeah. give a bit of advice, but it, it feels like we've already talked about one or two of the things you might have done differently. Is there anything else you, you'd add to, to what we were talking about before? Yeah, I love that question. If there would be one thing that I would say to past me, it would be to put myself in more positions uh, where I had no choice but to succeed. Right. You know, uh, the, the, the very first time I took this advice was uh, upon graduation and declining those full-time jobs, living off of my savings for just a year and trying to make a go out of exploring productivity for a living. And that's turned into two books, which have gone on to sell, you know, hundreds of thousands of copies and dozens of languages and all this stuff. And I don't say that to brag, but I would say that to impress upon my future or my previous self that it's okay to jump. Give yourself no choice but to figure things out uh, at the same time that you understand, you know, what you need in order to accomplish something. Uh, maybe not everything, but most of it. I, I wish I would have taken that advice more often before that point. Now I do it often, but <laughs> but but back then I, I I really didn't. It's kind of like burning your ship, right? Like put yourself yeah. in more situations where you have no choice but to succeed. This is a common thing that the the people that I know who are successful, they have done this at a point in their career that you can make a direct connection to their current success from this decision. And so that's that's something that I'd say. That feels like fantastic advice and a, and a great note to end uh, a, a really a really productive conversation hey, on. Uh, Chris, thank you ever so much. <laughs> Look, I'm sure there'll be people listening who want to go deeper on some of the things we've been talking about uh, and find out a bit more uh, from from you. Uh, where would you point them to? Uh, so my site is a lifeofproductivity.com. No ads, just one little annoying newsletter pop up. You can sign up if you want me to send you new posts when they come out. Uh, that's where I, I write about productivity and post my ideas there. I also have two books out. Uh, one is called Hyperfocus and one is called The Productivity Project. And I'm really happy with them both. They help you focus and uh, manage your time, attention and energy better, which I think are all ingredients we need right now. Well, fantastic advice there. Thanks again, Chris. I've put links in the show notes to both of those books. Personally, I'd recommend you go for The Productivity Project if you're looking for a really excellent general introduction to the world of getting productive. And go for Hyperfocus if you want to get deep into this idea of intense focus uh, and avoiding distractions. I've also linked up uh, to his website, alifeofproductivity.com, and also his podcast. Just before I go, I want to tell you a little bit about what's coming up over the next couple of weeks. I love that calculation from Chris a few moments ago about the value of meditation. I think he said for every minute you spend meditating, you gain nine minutes back through boosting your productivity and focus. That was a very timely comment because I've been wanting to dedicate an episode to meditation for quite a long time now because it can sound a bit woo-woo and complicated if you've never done it before, but it's actually so simple and has such incredible benefits for focus, concentration, mental health, anxiety, even memory. 
So in a couple of weeks' time, I've got Claire Kelly with me, who's an expert in teaching meditation and mindfulness techniques to students. In fact, she's so good, she actually trains other teachers in how to teach it to their students. Uh, And she's got some brilliant advice for students on how to get started and how meditation can help you uh, in your studies. So I'm really looking forward to sharing that with you. But before that, I'm joining you next week for a solo episode inspired by this conversation about productivity. I'm going to be reflecting back on my own productivity habits as a student, breaking down the exact study routine I was using when I was revising for my final exams at Cambridge University. I'll be sharing what, with hindsight, I think I got right back then, but also embarrassing myself by talking about all the things that I could have done better so that you can hopefully learn from what I did wrong. For now, wishing you an incredibly productive week, and I will look forward to seeing you next time. If you've got exams coming up, you can now get all of William's favourite tips and tricks to save you time and get you higher grades, all in one handy cheat sheet. Grab your copy at examstudyexpert.com slash free tips. Thanks again for listening, and see you soon.